Hello and welcome back to No Books on a Dead Planet, the podcast where we meditate on the fact that there will be no books in the future. No, I'm kidding. It's not that depressing, I promise. Um, This is the podcast where we read climate books so you don't have to. Uh, And today I am joined by Tom Nicholas to read Half Earth Socialism by Drew Pentagrass. What a surname, Drew. But you got all all the ladies with that surname. Sorry, sorry, Drew, it's not funny. Uh, And Troy Vettis. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for being on the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It is uh, an absolute pleasure. I have an uncle Drew and I thought he was like the only Andrew who was a Drew rather than an Andy. Did I think that? I'm sure I've come across other Drews, uh, but no, not the same person. I will clarify. I mean, we need some representation for Tommy's dad in the Rugrats, surely. The (laughs) ultimate Drew. (laughs) Is he a Drew? He's a Drew. And with his purple hair, living living his best dream. Um, but I'm sure he doesn't have a great surname like Pendergrass. Very natural as well, in keeping with the theme. Yeah, yes, it is. I wonder if sometimes the surname dictates the job. <laughs> Tom, for those of you who don't know your brilliant work, how would you describe it? Because I feel like you do so many things uh, that I don't know how to encompass your brain oh, into a thought into a job title the, the main thing that i do me neither it's uh the main thing i do is i i make videos for, for the internet that uh, broadly engage with news politics current affairs media criticism which is a, a a broad remit right that's quite a nice i feel like i've set myself such a broad remit that i essentially get to be interested or inquisitive about or uh, enraged about something and i can make a video and i can sort of fit it within that um in that ballpark somewhere so i love that professionally nosy (laughs) yeah (laughs) just get to pick something and be nosy about it for a week and then move on but that sort of (laughs) that is the thing that i find always drives my making of a video and and i think maybe what makes them not terrible sometimes is that if i'm interested in a thing hopefully someone else out there is interested in it and the fact that I've been interested enough to want to make a video about it hopefully means I do a better job than if I was like, I don't know, than if I was just like, this would be good content, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think you can tell you're excited about it all. Especially, I really enjoyed you did a three-part series on the royal family. I did that. Yeah, that was meant <laughs> to be one video. And then... Uh, the I, excitement I, just overtook you. Yeah, I, I, I made a short a short mini-series, which was a departure. But it was good, it was good, uh, good, good fun. Mm. Um, when it comes to I always ask all the guests this, when it comes to the climate um, I know you've talked a little bit about it in videos but in your normal life if you have one mm-hmm. <laughs> allegedly <laughs> you have a normal life um, do, how much do you talk about the climate because for me it's a bit it's been up and down I'll be honest I, I, I try and do my bit and in, in my everyday I, I, I cycle we only have one car in, in our house my wife needs it for work I will use that sometimes if I need it for work or but I will I generally cycle so it sort of yeah. comes up but I think it's often about the dis- there's often like key decisions you make at certain points where then actually those things become habitual I think mm. and do you find that because that sounds like it's kind of top of your mind when you're making like lifestyle decisions and stuff mm. do you find that it's something that worries you a lot is it something that kind of plagues your mind or is it something you're just a bit like well that's happening um I'll research it sometimes but it's not uh, like internally distressing me uh, depends what the thing is i think sometimes i'll realize just something we're using in the house that is like uses a silly amount of plastic and i'll be like okay right we need to do that or or i need to travel somewhere and suddenly i will have this big dilemma about how how am i gonna get there is there should i go to this place at all is there benefits to 
you know what are the different the financial but also mm. the social costs of doing or not doing that thing and i think you have to find the balance between wanting to be part of finding a solution to these things without taking absolutely all the pressure onto yourself to fix the problem because mm. that's not how we're going to solve the problem i mean I, I always find recycling is a really interesting example of the ways in which the things that we need to do to solve the climate crisis are this real mix of big structural changes on one hand and big like industries changing how they do things in collaboration with individual people doing things as well recycling feels like a very individual thing because it's us sorting the things into the different bins but it's also the result of councils or local governments in places going we're going to change the system that we use to sort out rubbish and balancing that yeah yeah i think it's interesting um in one of the books you've read for this series the uninhabitable earth which is mm. probably one of the most famous books on the climate and that guy has been rocketed to fame for his articles <laughs> and his writing about it he openly says in the first chapter i fly i eat meat i'm not he basically is very stubbornly like i'm not going to do any of that <laughs> stuff because I, do you know what I mean? I want to focus on the wider solutions and I've only got so much energy. And I was like, mm. that is a bold, I mean, I don't know if I agree with him, but I was like, that's, it's bold claims from a guy who's researched a lot about the climate. So I think it's, it's interesting. When it comes to um, the book that we have read together, what did you, because I think I sent you a few options for books and that kind of thing. What made you pick this book? And did you have any impression? You obviously must have had a positive impression of it before you picked it because. Yeah, I'd, it. I'd had it on my shelf for a little while. Um, Disclosure, I think Verso did send me this, but I, I hadn't read it. So read that into that. Whether uh, <laughs> They haven't what been you forced were, yeah, to yeah. read it. They, I, I didn't pay for it, but also I, I was under no obligation to actually read it. So it had been on my shelf for a little while. And I don't know, it always feels like uh, climate crisis has always been the this sort of secondary part of my politics, I guess, and my mm. not political understanding of the world, but I guess at the very least my political emphasis, I guess, when I was a slightly younger man, I used to go to Glastonbury yeah, for a run of a few years. And there's a politics tent at Glastonbury uh, run by Billy Bragg, the singer. And the politics in that tent was always really interesting because it was a sort of red versus green politics almost. Because everyone in there was sort of broadly left wing or an environmentalist of some description and so yeah i imagine the tories are at glastonbury a few and far between yeah or at the very least their schedule mm. isn't i'm gonna get up at nine to go to the debate that starts at 10 mm. uh, like it's sort of self-selecting who's there so yeah ev ev everyone in there is like broadly on board with with certain things i guess so the, the debate often became okay is this in terms of a certain issue would we prioritize workers rights and um, economic justice or would we prioritize the climate and uh, the planet i don't think those things always have to be separate in such those ways but that is often the ways in which those debates ended up and i think i uh, for a long time was someone who would a, a probably would have seen those things as quite separate and b would have opted for the former i think at some point and still to a certain extent there was this impression of climate politics being a sort of thing that nice middle class people do i guess um and sometimes still can be in the sense that i think for some people it's a it's a politics without 
which you can view as not having an enemy, right? So it becomes a politics that isn't antagonistic because... I won't say who, but like a while ago, I saw a, a tweet by a, a science communicator who described climate change as being a scientific problem, mm. as being we're putting too much carbon into the atmosphere. We need to be doing less of that and we need to get some of it out. Uh, and you can view it in that way. And in that way, it's like a sort of nice thing to do, isn't it? Because there's not there's no bad guys you're not having arguments with any you're just fighting some science mm. it's a whereas, cleansing ritual if anything <laughs> yeah where, whereas actually the people that are enabling more carbon to be released like mm. it's the political systems that exist around that sort of very scientific view of things that are the problem so sorry back to the thing the peel of it was me going oh i think this is going to have something to say to that right and this is going to help me uh root a climate politics within an economic politics that i'm already quite comfortable with and find out how those things can really link together mm. so it's that you had these two ideas but you what you this this book was kind of getting the needle and sewing them together a little bit do you feel like it did that for you <laughs> i feel one of the um main just to say some of the arguments in the book just to give people an overview because i know that some of you are not going to read it and that is totally fine <laughs> encouraged almost <laughs> to be honest one of the arguments is that we we can't have any kind of ecological revolution that's going to last or going to actually work without it being based on the idea of socialism and we also shouldn't bother with socialism if it's not mainly focused on the environment that i would say that's one of the broad arguments of the book would you agree yeah i mean to to, to co-opt your your podcast title i guess there's there's no socialism on a dead planet <laughs> they can have that slogan <laughs> <And> <laughs> I work with them yeah uh, but at the same time the there without socialism there is also a dead planet because the what the successes that we have had in terms of dealing with climate crisis have generally been that governments have done some regulating mm. and if we don't have that kind of regulation but also the sort of reor reorientation of how we organize our economy to um then there's always going to be someone who goes yeah but i could make loads more money doing the mm. just burning plastic or whatever yeah well, definitely the, the i i think um there's a great quote actually that i've written down that was um uh, the market could sell both the poison and the antidote but it cared little about the ratio of the two oh. <laughs> and i think that's the kind of that was a great quote that was just kind of explained why <laughs> the, da the the pitfalls of trusting stuff like that sorry you were gonna say something yeah so one bit that was one of those just small chunks which suddenly clicked a couple of things together for me and i was like god oh, that that's maybe something i should have thought about before but haven't and that this book sort of unlocked for me i guess was there's a section which they're talking about the fact that we need to eat less meat, which is a brilliant example of one of the things that maybe like uh, the author of, is it Davis Wallace Wells, the author of? Uh, that's him. A bit like him. I, like, I know I should eat less meat. I know I should probably eat no meat. And I occasionally attempt to cut back a bit, but I feel bad about it occasionally uh, like that that's the that's the the place in that journey i'm on I'm not doing anything about it but i'm not happy about it not, i'm oh, eating burgers oh, but i don't feel proud of myself um, <laughs> so yeah <laughs> so tasty and sad um <laughs> but there's a section where he talks about uh, all the the authors together presumably write about the fact that yes there's been a rise in meat substitutes in terms of veggie burgers and sausages that are no meat sausages and whether those are things that try and replicate being the meat itself or things that go off into a whole 
new world to adventure but that selling more of those isn't actually the thing that we need to do we need to consume less meat yeah if the if those products end up just existing as an additional thing in addition to the amount of meat that is already consumed like they've not really consumed they've not really done a huge amount uh yeah they are actually meant to be a tool to reduce and i don't know it was just one of those things where i was like i've never really thought about it like that i've always walked down that aisle of the meat substitutes sometimes sometimes bought them and thought oh this is sort of a, a generally good thing that these things are existing uh alongside the actual animal meat uh, but that I'd never really thought about that element where if you're still selling the meat as well, if we're still consuming the meat as well, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think it's the kind of idea of just like being able to replace the components of our life and make it look relatively similar to how it looks now mm. would be a green future. And to being like, actually, I'm afraid you're going to have to, have to rebuild your life and all of your habits from scratch. Mm. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's hard, hard news to hear. <laughs> But I know what you mean. It's that kind of like just because we're like replacing components of a structure doesn't mean that the structure isn't ultimately going to hurt us anyway. Um, the book is structured in a really interesting way. So it basically um, starts with a little bit, little bit of a chat, but then it opens up into this fictional future uh, where we they imagine that we do a lot of the green solutions. The green party is like cool, sits on its laurels a little bit. The left stop panicking, and then eventually everything goes to shit anyway because of the way the economy is running like biodiversity running their green markets in inverted commas everything still crumbles and the fact that we tried to solve it with capitalism means that a lot of people stopped working on uh, the environment it ends the book it then goes through three different solutions and why they won't work <laughs> that the that a lot of people offer which is bioenergy carbon capture and sequestration which is a word i've never heard anybody say out loud am i saying it right tom yeah i believe so i think you could be sequestration i think you can be like i think being sequestered can also be like a being in prison as well i think so like i think to Relatable. be locked up i think is to be sequestered yeah i think i think in this context it might mean like seizing markets so so carbon sequestration is the idea oh, yes, that we can suck carbon back out well so we can either capture it at source so you can have in a factory you can have the i'm sure this this is a major simplification but you could you could capture the carbon that otherwise would, would be released or you can have these magical facilities in the middle of nowhere which uh, which are essentially big hoovers that suck in air and take out all the carbon in the air and then pump out fresh air you can't have these don't work by the way uh, but and then you don't get excited you can yeah don't get don't get <laughs> too excited uh, but but this is like a, a big thing that's being pushed at the moment that you can suck up all, all the carbon out of the air expel all the uncarbonated air and then you take all the carbon and you uh, sequester it so you store it somewhere long term down in the ground somewhere yeah which i think um in my very basic understanding is the scientific equivalent of being like we don't need to tidy our room we'll just put everything under the rug and mum will not notice during the inspection and we'll deal with yeah. it later <laughs> and also the tidying is that you're taking like individual specks of dust and you're putting them under the rug whilst <laughs> yeah. at the same time uh, you have a very multi sort of cat running around uh, molting its hair everywhere yeah i think that's i think this is the kind of like analysis that's really going to break through to people you know these these are the kind of visual aids that we need in the climate movement cat hair and then the the final part of the book is a fictional future in uh 2047 which actually doesn't really feel that far away so 
<laughs> scary. But this this is an unscary future where um, we fulfill a lot of the suggestions that they have and we build everything from a socialist perspective and things are running weirdly but quite well. Like his life seems good. And it's based on News From Nowhere, which is a fictional future that William Morris imagined for our future a long time ago. (laughs) And when I say a long time ago, I'll pull up my Wikipedia page. I mean, 1890. (laughs) So yeah, that's the kind of structure of the book. And I think it's a really interesting way of framing it in with two fictions at the beginning and the end. I felt like we were talking about the kind of marrying between politics and and environmental movement. And for for me, I think I do also need that marrying up a little bit. I need to understand a little bit more about uh, why it works. But I would say that this, the book, uh, I think the subtitle is... Oh, it says a plan to save the future. And I thought that there weren't actually that many plans in it. It was more of a like a mood. It was like setting the vibe for the future. But I was actually hoping for more actual concrete plans. (laughs) Would you say that's fair? (laughs) Yeah. And I think some of that is born of the fact that it is about trying to, that sort of the, the plan in the broader sense is to establish a kind of model of democratic economic planning. And Therefore, part of the plan is that we make sure people are educated about the climate and about stuff like biodiversity, but also stuff like economics. And we therefore enable people to be able to make those decisions about some of the, you know, the, the, the place where we're at in terms of the climate crisis means that we're going to have to make some compromises, right? We're not going to be able to, there's not an easy switch to flick. And so the part of the this sort of very broad plan is that yeah we might all have to sit down and go would we like to save 80 percent of species on earth and have 50 percent of the the planet rewilded or do we want to rewild 45 percent and only have x amount of the species like we're gonna have to make some difficult decisions and Mm. so and so some of it i think comes from that desire to want to keep the options open in in some way i guess but yeah, it's definitely a lot of. I would agree the dials, that plan it? is probably a strong, a strong word. <laughs> yeah, fair. And I think there's an interesting example in the in the end, the fictional future at the end of the book, where I think he he's asking something about a car, and she's like, "Oh yeah, I've heard about cars. Like when there was a private ownership. I don't think that's ever going to be possible again, where you could have your own car. But from what I've heard, it didn't sound very fun. Like nobody seemed to like it very much. And I was like, that was an interesting insert to being like, are you even having fun owning your own car? Or is it just full of parking fines and admin? Maybe that's from somebody who doesn't own a car. I'm like, sounds shit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I. So we, yeah, we have one car between me and my wife. She uh, needs it for work because she has to mm-hmm. do, do trips part of work. And it's interesting how much it structures the way in which you think about like the options that you have for an evening or something like i have friends Mm. who would never think about getting the bus like what like almost that you would make the decision on whether you're going to go into town based on whether you feel like you can afford the parking that day you wouldn't think about there being another option you'd just be like ah i don't really fancy doing x on a saturday because the parking's expensive and it'll be busy in town rather than going Mm. it's actually not that far yeah (laughs) um like whereas me for me i'd be like i the added energy expended of like cycling into town which i'm you know Mm. something i'm very sort of lucky to be able to do both in terms of how far it is and also you know having the physical ability to do that the upgrade into having to like get in the car drive sit in some traffic for a while 
find somewhere to park remember where i've parked like that for me is like ah Mm. but won't bother actually yeah so i think for some people that one would be like a good example of a big trade-in but again Mm. it's all about mindset isn't it for Mm. me i'm like that sounds rubbish i'm sure there's other things that i'll have to give up that i'm like this is devastating for example blue cheese what what are we supposed to do in this world is that bad i I mean all cheese probably not i'm i imagine i imagine it's it's I imagine blue cheese wouldn't please the vegans. Can I <laughs> but, you clarify? Know, everybody's got luxuries that they would be. Uh, just to clarify. Can I cheese. clarify? I did know cheese was made from animals. Okay, just I just hadn't made the connection. We believe you. We believe you. It's been a long time. He's been on the internet too long. Yeah, like the kind of the the different trade-ins that we all have to maybe think about. Um, are, will be different for different people and some things will be incredibly easy to give up like traffic jams mm, mm. <laughs> and other things not so much um are there, wh- when you were thinking about this book because i know you read it a while ago and you've been re- revising it is there anything that really stuck out to you that you were like this is something i'll always remember from the book or this is if somebody asked you what's in that book this would be the fact or the thing that popped into your mind yeah i think uh in terms of like uh, in terms of broad stuff i did like the fictional opening and close i thought mm-hmm. it was like a fun way to open up the book i also yeah i liked some of the ways it paired together the climate politics and its economic politics in terms of like little nuggets i think the way in which it made me think rethink the ways in which sometimes climate solutions or things that are marketed as climate solutions are actually additional stuff rather than actually reducing the thing as it already exists was really useful it's funny sometimes that like one paragraph within a book just is the thing that sits with you that's quite interesting Mm. i will also remember it's it has an interesting nuclear bit where they're very anti-nuclear power and that was not a good bit (laughs) uh (laughs) you didn't you didn't enjoy hearing that nuclear power was bad or that you were just like just structurally there were there were a few flat bits in the it was just, admit that. Uh, no it was just uh, wrong um it was <laughs> oh, really? just remember Chino- remember Chernobyl, remember fukushima remember three mile island which were bad things that happened that we've sort of learned from and i think most climate scientists these days would say that nuclear power has to be part of the climate mm. solution or that at the very least to provide uh, what I think is called a base load. So you like wind and so like solar is brilliant. Solar is so cheap these days that um that is is it's gone just down drastically in terms of how much it costs. But you you need something that isn't dependent on the wind blowing or the tide moving or the sun shining because like every so often you have a bad day and so you need uh, like a, a base load to keep things ticking over and nuclear is probably going to be have to be our uh, solution to that it was interesting that it felt like most of the reason for including that was that they got they it felt like they had the sense that nuclear power is already a bit unpopular and it felt like they wanted to be able to piggyback off of that to make the rest of the stuff popular mm. i don't know just the way it was written i didn't i didn't necessarily feel that their hearts were massively in it that's fair uh, other stuff that I really liked, it also, I think, made me think about big data in a slightly different way. So they talk a lot. So a lot of the book is arguing for economic planning rather than a quote unquote sort of free market politics. So rather than letting the market decide what is good and bad and what is worth producing, what is not worth producing, etc. Going, actually, the scale of the climate crisis, we might have to. Uh, not just let those things be up to 
what sells the most we might have to go actually we're going to regulate the market more or we're going to put together a 10-year economic plan of how things go together and the focus is very much on that being democratic and people and there being a, a constant popular input in terms of what direction that goes in but one thing they talk a lot about is how we can use big data we're sort of used to thinking about big data as this really really bad thing about cambridge analytica and about the mat and like the nsa and stuff the sort of mass capture of, of data uh, whereas we can also if we have that kind of big data in terms of like anonymized data about what things are being bought what aren't how land is being used climate data in terms of how weather systems are operating that we can use all that to, you know, we have very powerful computers these days. Is there a way we can use that in a really positive way to run prediction models for if we make this decision, um, what effects does that have down the line? Which is stuff that I'm certain that is already happening in universities and such, but I guess is probably limited by who is willing to give you that information. Uh, and that was really interesting they they yeah that that was um a way of thinking about a thing that is often and i often think of as a bad thing but how can you turn that into something that could be used positively there's an element of um like abuse in every every new technology that i think needs a law around it and then mm. it doesn't doesn't mean that the whole thing is bad in mm. the same way with like rights and stuff i think that um, when we talk about optimization, you can't really do that without data and data comes from people. So I'm mm. much more of the persuasion that I'm like, just as long as you protect some of my general rights, I'm totally fine that you have my data. Take my cookies. Let me know what's going on. <laughs> um, and it's the, the element of trust that's the, that needs to be established. Something they don't do, that I don't think they do say explicitly in the book, but I guess there is that separation with, with data, particularly in, in terms of like big data and kind of, I don't know, mm. small data maybe. I don't know what it's called, but... How many people are visiting dot 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 website or, or is a slightly different question to what websites is Lena Norms visiting on Friday? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, the is she planning stuff. a just stop oil <laughs> protest? Um, there's ways of picking up the big data without the minute tracking of individuals, I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, something I thought was really interesting as well that I, again, I just hadn't, it had never come across it. He, and again, some of it, I, I need to read more books on the climate because I feel like some parts of this, I don't completely trust the narrators of this book in that I think sometimes, I think you're right, I didn't know about the nuclear thing, but I think there's a few other points that I was like, oh, I'm not sure if that's completely true. But something interesting that they put forward is that they think that um, one of the frameworks for the environmental crisis all go back to three works that were all written in 1798, which seems a little convenient. <laughs> and I don't know if so, so it's very true. Um, one of them was by Hegel. One of them was Mathenusianism. Mathenusianism. Mal Malthusianism. Math <laughs> I've only read it written down. I've never talked to anybody about it. And then the other one was about ecological skepticism by Jenna Wright. But I I think that was all interesting in the in the point that they tried to make at the end was that it's important that people on the left know that people have been talking about this for a very long time. And the question mm. of whether nature is knowable or predictable is something that's been in our consciousness for a long time and, and whether it's possible. And they use the example of the biosphere too, which was the experiment that they did to try and see if they could uh, replicate Earth's atmosphere and some of the like biodiversity within it, and it died. It didn't go well, <laughs> from what I can remember in the book. They elaborated further, but it wasn't possible. <laughs> so I thought that was really interesting as well. This idea of like um, trying to curb nature and 
our relationship to it and how arrogant we can be when we use predictors to say will this work will this not work so i think that was really interesting and they also had a really big section on mary shelley which i wasn't expecting and the connections with frankenstein and the eco world which i'm now going to go and read loads more about so in a lot of ways i think this book was great because it pointed out a lot of things to me that i was like i'm gonna go away sirs and read somebody else's writing on that now because i knew that i know that existed so i think Mm. in that way there were a lot of like points that for me like weren't complete but they gave me good ideas of what else to go and research afterwards yeah, I yeah, and I think it does get across that broad idea of viewing ourselves as part of an ecosystem, mm. right? That rather than it sort of paints this this vision of left wing or at least Marxist thought as being a tradition in which history has been viewed as humanity's victory over nature, which I'm not sure is entirely fair. I think it's probably a thing that is underthought rather than has been explicitly said that way, maybe, I guess. Mm. But it's certainly an interesting provocation to actually go, no, we are part of these systems. We are really reliant on them in the same way that they are reliant on us. And I think that can sound sometimes like a really like hippy dippy thing to to say like aren't we just monkeys that built computers but (laughs) but in some ways uh in some ways we are just monkeys that built computers you know we're we're, we're learning at the moment that you know actually if the bees go bees aren't just a thing that sting us they if the bees go that's bad that's actually bad we we need the bees Mm. (laughs) <laughs> we need the bees <laughs> sorry i can't remember where i thought it was going how, how else could you bees. say it we need the bees shout um, it loud but there's lots of things that we've been taught to, to despise like wolves as well we need the wolves we've mm. been loads of fairy tales about how wolves are bad and scary actually we need wolves back in the uk they're working on it but yeah stuff like that is unexpectedly actually we know very little mm. yeah i mean yeah and that i mean that i think that's what you were getting across was that 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 sense of nature as kind of always a little bit unknowable mm. because Nate, I, I think the, the book discusses the ways in which the economy so sort of free market economists view the economy as kind of a computer in which the information that is happening is who is buying which stock and which share who is buying certain products and not buying pro- certain products who is taking certain jobs what is unemployment like that that the economy is some kind of magical computer that makes decisions and sort of optimizes the world for the things that we need and to distribute resources. The book argues that actually we could use actual computers to do economic planning to work out some of those things, whilst also factoring in stuff like social and economic justice, which the quote-unquote computer of the economy generally isn't very good at optimizing for. Mm. Uh, But actually, nature in some respects does its own computing that we don't quite understand always in terms of you know we we do it at school where if you have more of one animal they eat too many of the other animal and it knocks things off and i'm not a ecologist but i i know those things change over time but we i guess it's a sense of like actually do we need to respect some of the unknowable elements of of nature in that sense definitely um and i think the the half earth part of that as well is just like part of it is just rewilding half the earth because we don't actually really know what's going on there but we should probably let the earth take over <laughs> was interesting as well this idea that like yeah that we're giving at least half of the land mass over to the but when i'm saying that does that sound possible to you do you feel like 
after reading this book or just in general the the utopia at the end of the book do you feel like that because the the a world where half the world is rewild we have energy quotas everybody is vegan and we generally live under a planned socialist economy are you feeling <laughs> if so, there's yeah, like so a lot like, like the the sort of provocation you're referring to is that that i think the calculation is that you need to rewild half the earth to save like 82% i think it is of species mm. and to so to stop or to at least limit this kind of sixth, sixth mass extinction that you sort of that we hear, we hear a lot about by 2047 uh, no mm. i don't i don't think that's doable i think we are likely to see more economic planning come into the ways in which markets are looked after i think that seems to be happening in a sense there are elements of sort of joe biden's economic policy which have been a little bit more interventionist maybe than previous uh, u.s presidents it looks like if i mean we've just been through a, a pandemic in which we saw programs that would have been unthinkable a year before like the government paying people's salaries in order to keep them at home mm. uh, or, or in the u.s doing stimulus checks to try and boost the economy afterwards we've seen those kind of interventions in, in the economy which would otherwise have been and, and probably if you asked some economists now would would uh, or, or some economists to the right at least would have been deemed un unthinkable without that so maybe once climate crisis does come knocking a little bit more on the doors of wealthier countries maybe we do start to see more of that I don't think we're going to be living on communes. Uh, I think that's maybe a little bit optimistic. But, I mean, they give the quote at the beginning, the... I can't think who it is. It's a relatively sort of famous quote. Um, the Oscar Wilde quote about utopias. Yes. So the, the... It's something to the effect of, we need utopias. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> so it's, a map of the world that does not include utopia is not worth even glancing at. For it leaves out the one country at which humanity is always landing. And when humanity lands there, it looks out and, seeing a better country, sets sail. Progress is the realisation of utopias. Mm. So I think there is the uh, intentional inclusion of a utopian vision of how... Like, I don't, I don't necessarily know that they are imagining that we're going to definitely get there, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think um, if I was going to say, like, oh, if there's a couple of things that I would take away if somebody was like, what was that book about? Um, I'd say that one of their main, one of the main feelings I get from both of them is that they, uh, actually, I think I wrote down a quote about it. Oh, yes, I did. Uh, For too long, the left has been better at critiquing than creating its own positive proposals. And I think that is valid. While I don't agree with all of their proposals, I think that you're right. It's like, we need some kind of vision. I'm not convinced that their vision will be possible by 2047. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd also um, argue that they do a lot of critiquing throughout the book rather than necessarily proposals but yeah uh, and actually i do think there is real value in small proposals sometimes actually that there is mm. already or at least examples which are are rooted there's a book about called the people's republic of walmart sorry i was looking for it and which is all about how amazon is essentially a planned economy it's just a private planned economy Ooh. Um, so like 50% of all retail in America is run by a centralized corporation that is always making decisions about maybe not what products are being listed because actually a lot of it's uh, the marketplace is more and more of the business these days. But a lot of it happens in-house, right? The Amazon has its own warehouses. It delivers the stuff itself. And although a lot of what is listed 
these days is not listed by Amazon itself, it's third-party sellers. It is a huge part of the American economy that is essentially run by one company, and, and they, they sort of look at Walmart in much the same way, and it makes decisions. Um, the fact that both Walmart and Amazon are such big sellers means that if you produce a product, you have to make it sellable on Amazon, mm. or you have to make it sellable in Walmart because else... You miss out on a huge part of the market. Yeah. Yeah. So and so so that company ends up deciding what products are available elsewhere as well, because if they decide that all cleaning products need to be 300 milliliters, I don't know why that's the first thing that's gone to head, but then you sort of do that for them and then you sell it the same elsewhere. For me, that argument sort of for a more planned economy just felt a little bit more rooted, I guess. Mm. And they, they do use examples in here. They they focus on uh, the, the Cybersyn project in chile under salvador aland where they had a, a kind of like star trek there's a podcast about it uh, which came out not super long ago i can't remember what it's called right now but they had a kind of star trek style room with like chairs where they would run calculations and they would go well what if we do produce x more of this each year or x less of that uh each year how does what are the knock-on effects of doing so and so there is examples in here. I'm not suggesting there's not at all. Mm. But I think there is a use in those big utopian visions. There is also sometimes a use in really hooking something on to something that's really recognisable mm. and something that people really see in their everyday lives. I really want to read that Amazon book now that's really into the People's Republic of Walmart, it's called. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to look into that. I think it's interesting. Yeah, I think as well, like um, my my critique of the book being not too much about solutions and, and that kind of thing, it kind of falls flat when you go on their website because they have this website that's just half dot earth and in it they have built a game that I encourage you to play. <laughs> if, you, if you're listening, go, go and have a little look. Um, it's essentially kind of, if you've gone on the Project Drawdown website, which is a website that lists in little squares every climate solution that exists right now and that is possible it's kind of like that but more pokemon cards where you can pick you can kind of twizzle the dials you have three ratings at the top of your screen one is uh how bad the planet is doing mine is on big red right now uh one is how happy your people are because if your people aren't happy then they'll vote you out and then you can't do anything else and then one is the temperature of the globe And you have to start picking different solutions to see how to affect that. Um, and so there's different categories like research. I, at the moment, I have, I've banned outdoor cats. Really exciting. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> I've given indigenous land rights, uh, which is one of the policies. What else can we do? We can do cloud brightening if we want. Um, and it, it kind of, in some ways, even if you don't understand it all, which I definitely don't, it just shows you how it's so, it's not, str- when somebody says, will it be okay? Will we survive? are we going to go into extinction it's it's just it's such a complicated question because there are so many freaking options and there are so many dials and knobs that we could turn and in some ways i think that that's kind of hopeful to see how many possibilities there are even if we're not always in control of choosing them (laughs) it's interesting because the last time i played something a little bit like that was that the science museum did a this was some years ago now. I happened to be at the Science Museum. I don't know why. As part of one of these exhibitions, it was about what if we had techno trees? And it made you play this game where you similarly, you chose like what climate policies do you want to do? And it had this thing where as soon as you did too much, it was like, no, this won't won't happen. Every, you've, you've been assassinated or something. 
and it was clearly designed to be like oh we can't do too much and i did it i did realize afterwards that the exhibit was sponsored by shell and or was it shell bp okay it was sponsored by some kind of those who cannot be trusted yeah and uh the whole thing was about sort of techno trees which were which were these it was all about uh carbon capture and sequestration just not being like what if we just used actual trees rather than like having these fake so it was trying to make carbon capture but make pretend trees that would suck in the carbon and then presumably go and store it somewhere which is the thing that actual trees do uh but trying to find like a techno like version of that. the wheel yeah. you're like it's okay because we still have trees <laughs> there's yeah. no need for you to try and replicate that as well as with the biosphere two experiment i'm like but we still have the earth so like let's do plan a for a little while and if that doesn't work then we can have your weird idea <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah it's the way it's the way the human brain works would you recommend this book to anyone and if so who i feel like it wouldn't be a universal recommendation for either of us would you say that's fair yeah i think it gets into the weeds a little bit Mm -hmm. occasionally it like you mentioned about it often returning to hegel and to malthus and to sort of relatively old texts which i think are useful in the context of an intellectual history and maybe you do get across that thing, thing that you were saying about the fact that you know, these are not new ideas that are being discussed. We are not the first people to suddenly realise that maybe nature is important. But I didn't necessarily always think was super important for what is presented as a kind of short mm. and provocative text. I thought the fictional bits were really interesting and useful and served to get the reader on board but that then that was almost the opposite of some of the other stuff which was not dense in terms of being lengthy but i think yeah maybe got into the weeds a tiny bit more than it Mm. needed to i think that you could really get something out of this book if you just read the fictional part at the beginning and the fictional part at the end because I think there's actually quite a lot of information embedded in the fiction parts. <laughs> and I think you agree, like you you could be put off by reading the middle and never get to the end, which I think would be sad. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. I, uh, I think it, it feels a bit academic at times, I think, in, yeah, the, sense of, in the sense of, yeah, both, both our authors are academics. I think just sometimes it felt like that, the, the need to be able to evidence... And, and mention every time an idea has also been mentioned previously and less of a chance to really humanise that Earth 2 project. I can't know, what was it called? The Biosphere 2? Biosphere 2. Like to really humanise that yeah. or the CyberSyn project or some of those, which I think the beginning and end did re- really well. Uh, yeah, I'd have liked to have seen some more of that. So I think to anyone who's already interested in these topics, I think it's interesting. I think it uh, re- reviews some of those histories quite well. I probably wouldn't give it to someone as a, oh, do you want to think about how climate and climate politics and economic politics cross over? I don't think it'd be the first book I'd recommend. Mm, and definitely, I don't think the first climate book that I'd, if somebody mm. was like, I've never read a book on climate, I'd be like, this isn't your, this isn't a starter pack. And I also was thinking about like, I, I'm kind of already sold on the idea of socialism. So for me, it was a great ride. But I don't know if I'd give it to somebody who wasn't sold on the idea of socialism mm-hmm. because I feel like it doesn't quite, it's not positioned as something that's persuasive. It's more just like, 
since you agree mm. <laughs> um there was a, i read an interesting goodreads review about the book just before we came on and uh, it said despite all its empiricism this engaging frustrating invigorating and in place downright annoying book is just the kind of utopian thinking we need on the left <laughs> And I think it's the thing of like, everybody was like, I didn't really enjoy this, but I did feel like it was good. It was kind of like almost like the broccoli <laughs> of the of the uh, climate books. It's like, yeah, we do need a book like this. Mm. Uh, but we but I don't think anybody had a like a five star review to give it. So I think that was interesting. And I think the game's cool. And the game is really cool. You should totally play the game. I did. It was um, a little while ago that I played it. And that is a very different way of presenting stuff, which I think is is fun and useful and novel and cool. Yeah, and I think it's it's the weird thing about like different mixed media things is that mm. without the book, I wouldn't have known about the game. And mm. <laughs> sometimes you need like a little bit of both. I feel like they need more than one medium to explain their ideas and th- just the book alone isn't really enough. And I think that together they make a better pairing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, okay, brilliant. So we're, 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 we're lightly recommending it to some people, um, but hopefully from this podcast, you got enough of the nuggets <laughs> of the interesting parts of this book without having to read it, which is after all the point. <laughs> Thank you so much for reading, buddy, reading this book with me, Tom. Um, I know that it was a bit of a struggle at points, so I'm, I'm glad that we got to it. <laughs> but yeah, if people want to look at your work, where's the best place that they should start? Where's your online website game? Why don't you have an interactive... <laughs> Oh, that'd be fun. I'd like to do a game show yeah. I think, at some point. That'd be quite fun. <gasps> that'd be great. Uh, my name's uh, Tom Nicholas, and you can type that into YouTube, and some videos will come up. And I don't know, like maybe some of them aren't bad. I don't know. Like, <laughs> give them a shot. Who knows? Who knows? And you've got a podcast too. I've yes, been on it. called Yes, called Induction. Yeah. Uh, and Lena yeah. was on an episode, and you should check that one out. Yeah. Rep the podcast too. Very important. Thank you so much for listening to No Books on a Dead Planet. You've got loads of other episodes to flick through, so go and listen to another one why not and we'll see you soon happy reading